KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, we'll talk about white politics and black history in the commemoration of the Tulsa Race Massacre 100 years ago this week. We'll speak with historian and journalist David Perry. And our film critic Ella Taylor will talk about some of the documentaries about Tulsa in 1921 that are playing on TV now. But first, today's Capitol Hill update. For that, we turn to Alan Minsky. Of course, he's former program director here at KPFK, an important person in the history of this show. Now he's executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, the national grassroots group that works with the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Hi, Alan. Hey, John. Great to be here. Well, let's start with Biden's infrastructure bill. It's called the American Jobs Plan. That's the $2.3 trillion bill that covers a lot more than traditional roads and bridges. And of course, the Republicans don't like that. Uh, some of them have offered a counter proposal about $1 trillion for traditional roads and bridges. Is Biden going to go for the bipartisan solution to infrastructure legislation this term? I hope not. Um, and I hope that the Democrats in the House will be adamant about the inclusion um, and in the Senate in the inclusion of the aspects of the infrastructure bill that the Republicans have taken out and therefore it will go forward. I will say this, that Biden has done one little sly trick that not many people have paid a lot of attention to. One is to take a, some elements of the, as we all probably remember, uh, Republicans and Donald Trump as well, uh, would acknowledge the need for an infrastructure package. There is currently a bill that just is going to pass the Senate next week. It almost passed before they went on Memorial Holiday weekend called the Endless Frontier Act, introduced in the House initially by Ro Khanna and in the Senate by none other than Chuck Schumer, with seven original Republican co-sponsors in the Senate. Okay, so this was already very close to getting 60 votes. What is the Endless Frontier Act? The Endless Frontier Act creates um, a pool of money that is for high-tech research that's outside of DARPA. Uh, as we probably all know, and, and listeners to the show would know, and to the station would know, that uh, so much of the technology that we use has been developed by some of the, a branch of the American defense spending. So our touch screens, the internet, so many things we all use, right, have been developed by the Department of Defense. So this is for a separate pool for high-tech research. That's very important in terms of how it can relate to future infrastructure. Well, Biden has taken the manufacturing element of his American jobs plan and is transporting it over to the Endless Frontier Act. So this allows him to have a larger Endless Frontier Act and also seem like he's cutting back his American jobs plan and maybe meeting the Republicans part of the way. Uh -huh. Okay, but still, even with that element pushed over to Endless Frontier, hoping to get 60 votes to pass, so manufacturing and high-tech research, very important for renewable energy systems, for instance, the Endless Frontier Act, um, and the American jobs plan Still, what he's proposing, though, has many, 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 many things that need to be in there that the Republicans don't have in their package. So let's hope it does not, he does not 
bend to the Republican desire for a bipartisan smaller package. He goes with a larger package. How significant is this, John? This is the difference between an economy that can carry the Democrats to victory in 2020, an economy that is 20, slowed 20, 2022. In, that can carry the Democrats to victory in 2022, and one that is not so jumping as to not carry the Democrats to victory in 2022. So the Republicans want a smaller bill, Democrats want a bigger bill, and a Democratic bigger bill will not be, will be much greener and it will be much more attentive to um, the racial wealth gap, uh, economic inequality, um, and just lifting the whole economy to really jumpstart it in the next few years coming out of the pandemic. And the second thing that will really help the Democrats in 2022 is Biden's American Families Plan. This is the $1.8 trillion proposal for workers, students, and families, which will expand access to education and massive funding for childcare. This one is financed through higher taxes on the wealthiest Americans. Of course, the Republicans don't like the way it's going to be paid for or the purposes it's going to be used for. Where do we stand on the American Families Plan this week? As far as I understand, and I suppose we'll step back and talk about again, just very quickly, what reconciliation means and going through regular order means. But first of all, let me just say, nobody has felt that the American Families Plan could ever become a bipartisan bill. When a bill becomes a bipartisan bill in these cases, it means it needs 60 votes in the Senate because the filibuster still exists. There is a process by which even while the filibuster still exists, you can get a bill through with 50 votes plus the tie-breaking vote of the vice president, and that is called a reconciliation process. Only those bills that directly correlate to federal budgetary matters are even potentially available to go through the reconciliation process. We can tell that both of these do have that. There's a lot of federal expenditures in the American Jobs Plan, and the American Family Plan is almost exclusively, very clearly by everyone's conception, available for reconciliation. Given that it has higher taxes on the wealthiest, guess what? The Republicans have no interest in it. And not only that, it's a more classical bill of social welfare spending. It is headed towards reconciliation. So we want this to be as strong as we can make it. We want to see the child tax credits that Biden has made temporary that was put forward in the last Relief Act, make them permanent. That will be hugely important to millions upon millions of Americans, a $300 credit per child per month. Uh, as a tax credit, that would be permanent. But there is something that's going to be a battle between the moderate wing and the progressive wing in the American Families Plan. And that has to do with health care reform. This is very important to progressives like an organization such as PDA. In the American Families Plan, the reforming of the health care system, is it going to go towards tightening the processes of the ACA, Obamacare as it's known, right? which is again, all healthcare for people zero through 65 does get channeled through private healthcare companies other than Medicaid, right? And that is the proposal for the moderates. Pramila Jayapal and Bernie Sanders want to see not um, the new supplements to Medicare, but classic core Medicare be expanded through the American Families Plan to include um, hearing, eyesight, and dental. So above the shoulders <laughs> to expand Medicare finally so that you have free at the point of service for Medicare recipients 
uh, again, paid for as a single-payer structure, dental, vision, and hearing. What does that do? That is a way of reforming the American healthcare system that sets us more on a path towards universal single-payer healthcare for all people by showing how great classic Medicare can be. Big priority for Sanders and Jayapal when we have wafer-thin majorities in both houses, just a handful of progressives can make a big impact. That is really looking like the big battle for the American family plan going forward. And then there's the really big battle, the battle for that's called filibuster reform. Mm -hmm. uh, oh boy, we're getting close to the deadline where either we're gonna have filibuster reform or we're gonna have defeat of the rest of the Biden agenda and the rest of the progressive agenda. How's it looking today? Well, here's the thing. We're, we're of course, if we are in the, uh, the first first two years of the Biden administration, the two-year term of the 117th Congress, we obviously have until the next elections and the people are seated to pass bills with this makeup of the two chambers of, of, com of, the, of the Congress. However, one thing has to be passed, in our opinion, in the next two months, and that is uh, what's been called HR1 or S1, the For the People Act, as well as we'd also like to see the John Lewis Voting Rights Act pass. Why? Why do they need to be passed in the next two months? Because the Republicans are winning elections by restricting the vote, by basically, and this is a civil rights issue, suppressing the vote in known Democratic constituencies. No surprise here, they are focusing on communities of color and restricting the votes there. And let me just say, as a historian, this is nothing new. The Republican, this has been a Republican project since since the 60s. Since it used since, to be a Democratic project before the 60s. <laughs> before that, yes. Right. So and now it's the right wing party, the Republican Party, not the Dixiecrat Democrats from before uh, the civil rights era. So yes, they are they are doing that. It is very real. And a component, a major component of their scheme is gerrymandering. That means we have about a two, not even maybe yet yeah, two months. We're into June already because what the census has been reported and the legislate, the state legislatures are going to set the districts, which they have to do so that people know what they're running for uh, when they're running for something in the 2022 elections. So the new congressional districts will be set. And it's, by the way, they're set everywhere. They're not only set in states that either gained or lost a, a, a seat because populations shift within states and every congressional district is supposed to be roughly, what, 775,000 people, right? So there's shifts all over the place. They have to set the map for the districts. S1, HR1 will outlaw gerrymandering. That will have a massive impact on the 2022 results. It could very well be the difference between a Republican-controlled House and a Democratic-controlled House. And if the Republicans are able to block, this is not going to happen in the next two months. Believe me, they will be doing cartwheels. And Jim Crow, who we thought was in his grave, will be doing cartwheels. And the proposal well. here is, uh, is to abolish gerrymandering by requiring nonpartisan commissions in every state to do the redistricting instead of leaving it in the hands of the dominant political party. And because S1, HR1, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act do not have a budgetary, federal budgetary component, they cannot go through reconciliation. They can only be passed by eliminating the filibuster because no Republican will allow it to pass. I don't even think the talking filibuster is enough to get this through because the Republican Party, this is constitutive to what they are about right now, okay? 
And unfortunately today, there was really bad news on this front because uh, Kristen Sinema, one of the two Democrats in the Senate who are clearly not in favor of removing the filibuster had this to say, and I don't know if you saw the quote just from today. And I'm quoting from the uh, Arizona, uh, lo the local paper out of Phoenix. In Tucson, Sinema reiterated her position that the filibuster is a tool that quote, protects the democracy of our nation and is meant to create comedy and encourage senators from both parties to work together. Quote, to those who say that we must make a choice between the filibuster and X, I say this is a false choice. This is Kristen Sinema again. The reality is that when you have a system that is not working effectively, and I would think that most would agree that the Senate is not a particularly well-oiled machine, right? The way to fix that is to fix your behavior, not to eliminate the rules or change the rules, but to change the behavior, Sinema added. And that is terrible news because as I said earlier, yes, we have only two months to get this through and that has a great significance for the 2022 midterms, but then there's the entire democratic social agenda, the DREAM Act, the, the, the Pro-Labor Pro Act, the Equality Act, any sensible gun legislation, the George Floyd policing legislation, none of that will get off of Schumer's desk and get voted on in the Senate unless the filibuster is removed. That means the entire Democratic Party social agenda that tens of millions of people thought was going to get passed when Joe Biden became president and the Democrats won both the Senate and the House is stalled and not going to go forward. And but, that's an incredible but, tragedy. My but here is it's not over yet. There is right. a big effort. I'm sure you guys in Progressive Democrats of America are part of it to persuade Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin to change their minds. The way to do this, my understanding from the strategists in, in Arizona and West Virginia, is not to denounce them as tools of the Republicans, but to persuade them of the value to their own constituents of passing everything on the Democratic agenda. And there's a huge grassroots effort into persuading them. The donors are organizing to uh, contact them to try to persuade them. And I'm sure PDA is organizing to try to persuade them. We are, and we are also doing something a little bit different. We've written every Senate office in the country and we've had constituents in all 28 states that have Democratic senators encouraging their senators to speak out publicly in support of ending the filibuster. Um, so we want to also exert pressure on uh, the members of the Senate who are supporting ending the filibuster, which apparently there's, you know, 45 or so that are really solid and 48 who've said they'll go along with it, uh, including the administration wants to see it happen. So we're encouraging people to really lift their voices, ask all senators to speak out on this, and then, yes, everything that John just said, and yes, the grassroots effort in West Virginia and Arizona. If you're not in one of those two states, do what you can from the outside to support those grassroots efforts. And PDA is very involved in all of that. So yes. And the other thing is I'm sure that all of us got those emails from Kirsten Cinema, especially when she was uh, running, saying, you know, give me $5, $10, $25. $25. If you contributed to Kirsten Cinema, you should tell her that as a contributor, you urge her to rethink her position on the filibuster because it is so important to all the things we all share in common as goals. And that's a lot of people in California gave five, 10, 25, $100 to Kirsten Cinema last time around. 
Um, indeed, absolutely. And uh, exert whatever pressure that you can. And um, and it's right. We want to see cinema and mansion do the right thing. We want to see it happen as soon as possible. And again, we want to see it happen really in the next month or two so that we can pass this very important bill that will, again, not allow the gerrymandering of districts across the country in the states where the Republicans control the state legislatures. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. The fight to stop the tar sands pipeline called Enbridge Line 3 is reaching a climax in Minnesota this week. This is the pipeline that would bring the world's dirtiest oil from the Alberta tar sands across northern Minnesota near tribal lands near the Boundary Waters Wilderness Canoe area to a terminal in Superior, Wisconsin, where my mother grew up. Uh, the fight to stop Line 3 has been going on for years, and next Monday, June 7th, will be a huge day of protest, of nonviolent direct action. They're expecting thousands of people to join the, the protest there. This is part of the Treaty People Gathering, June 6th to 9th, around the slogan, Rise, Protect, Stop Line 3, uh, led by, among others, Winona LaDuke of Honor the Earth, uh, you could call her a Harvard-educated economist. You could call her an author or a political organizer. She's one of the indigenous people of Minnesota who called themselves Anishinaabe. She lives on the White Earth Reservation south of Bemidji. She's a water protector who's been fighting this pipeline for years. The pipeline crosses dozens of rivers, including the Mississippi, and that gives Biden a way to stop Enbridge Line 3. Remember, the environmental movement convinced Biden to stop the Keystone Pipeline, and this is a very similar fight. Biden has the power to order the Army Corps of Engineers to revoke the pipeline's Federal Clean Water Act permits, which were issued in the final days of the Trump administration, and that would prevent Enbridge from crossing the navigable waterways along Line 3's route, those rivers of northern Minnesota, and that would halt this project immediately. You can find more information at treatypeoplegathering.com. I know that PDA is part of the fight to stop Enbridge Line 3. We are indeed, and uh, people probably remember from late in the Obama administration the struggle to uh, stop the Dakota Access Pipeline and the incredible um, coming together of people um, of, to follow the leadership of the indigenous people of the Dakotas in the fight to stop that pipeline. And that is what is really being built up in Minnesota. We encourage people to go there. We encourage people to be um, supportive of the leadership there and to follow the leadership there. They have been fighting this fight for a long time. Of course, it's been very difficult during the pandemic. Now we are seeing people able to travel around society. I believe, John, you know that Northern Minnesota is very beautiful in summertime. And uh, this is uh, late spring, early summer, it's getting going. And it's very important that this get lifted up to the level of where things were and even beyond where it was with the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, there's great, incredible indigenous leadership there up in Northern Minnesota that's been fighting this, that's been getting the word out. And now we have an opportunity with the uh, lessening of restrictions because pandemic numbers are in better shape than they were a while ago. People still, of course, need to be safe and, and respectful of everybody's safety, but it's a, a real opportunity. And then just to talk about the tar sands, 
um, you know, this is this kind of uh, cognitive dissonance, this kind of disconnect that exists in far too many pockets of political struggle and political awareness around the world where, you know, and, and even during the Trump era, you had this sort of like elevation of, of Justin Trudeau into being some kind of great liberal hero that we all needed to embrace. Well, excuse me, uh, Prime Minister uh, Trudeau, but you are actually putting the on switch for um, the, the most toxic fossil fuel mass production site in the world. That's what the, where the oil is coming from. Um, I believe James Hansen has said that if the tar sands go forward, it's game over for us having a habitable climate on this planet for humanity. That's what the stakes are, folks. And um, so, yes, do whatever you can to support the groups that are spearheading the effort in northern Minnesota. Uh, let's really stand with them and make sure that we stop Enbridge Line 3 and all of the tar sand pipelines and let's invest as they have in the Endless Frontier Act and even more so in the development and lifting up of renewable energy systems so that uh, we are no longer reliant upon fossil fuels for energizing our society. More information at treatypeoplegathering.com. One final thing, Gaza. 145 House Democrats have urged Republicans to release their hold on Palestinian aid money. They say this is money desperately needed in the wake of the Israeli bombing of Gaza. The effort is being led by Representative Jamie Raskin, but the proposal is backed not just by progressive Democrats in the House, but it's won support from across the ideological spectrum of the Democratic Party. So this is a progressive issue, but it's also broader than a progressive issue. Right, and we at PDA have been calling on people to um, support another Minnesotan's bill, Betty McCollum's bill for the human rights of Palestinian children to put conditions on USAID uh, in, in perpetuity uh, to Israel. Um, though, you know, it's an it's a, it's a interesting world that, you know, you get involved in things up on Capitol Hill, because by the way, you know, we are very uh, happy with Representative McCollum. She's recently signed on to Medicare for All and for the introduction of the bill uh, restricting or putting condition on aid to Israel. Um, then people should look up that bill and support that bill and get the word out about it. Um, and uh, yet, uh, Representative McCollum from Minnesota hasn't really come out strong against Enbridge Line 3. So, uh, Betty McCollum, <laughs> if you're listening, <laughs> come on, join the people up in northern Minnesota and fighting Enbridge Line 3. And, um, and uh, of course, uh, irregardless, people need to support her bill. It's a brilliant bill and the initiative that Jamie Raskin is leading. It's essential that, uh, again, our, our approach to... Um, you know, foreign policy around the world be be um, built upon a foundation that is based on universal human rights and equal rights for all people, uh, with a little emphasis on the second half there when it comes to Israel and Palestine. Alan Minsky of Progressive Democrats of America. Follow them at pdamerica.org. Thank you, Alan. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Great to be with you, John. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. 
Joe Biden went to Tulsa on Tuesday to commemorate the fact that 100 years ago this week, in 1921, a huge white mob attacked an all-black neighborhood there. It was one of the worst episodes of racial violence in U.S. history. Historians think it left 300 dead and maybe 10,000 people homeless. For comment, we turn to David M. Perry. He's a journalist and historian whose work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Guardian, the Washington Post, and The Nation. He's also on the staff of the History Department at the University of Minnesota. Last time we talked here, it was about Ilhan Omar. We reached him today uh, in the Twin Cities. David Perry, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Tulsa in 1921. I'm an American historian, but I did not learn anything about Tulsa when I was in college or grad school. In fact, I didn't really learn anything about it until the last couple of years. You know, briefly, in the decades after the Civil War, freed slaves looked to Oklahoma, then a frontier territory, as a place black people could establish their own towns, and they did. 45 black towns, and then oil was discovered. Tulsa became an oil boomtown, and the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa became a prosperous black neighborhood. And then 1921, remind us what happened, the facts of the massacre. Sure, and you know, this is the work of, of many historians who've been trying to tell this story more accurately and in ways that are more rooted in the voices of survivors and descendants. In 1921, a black man was accused of assaulting a white woman. Uh, there, a lynch mob gathered, and in a, two different groups of black men showed up armed to defend him. Uh, one of the whites grabbed the gun from one of the, the black men. It went off. A gunfight ensued, leaving many dead, mostly, mostly the black men. And then there was a period of incitement when in a very organized, very deliberate fashion, large groups of whites descended upon the Greenwood neighborhood, burning, killing, and attacking. The local authorities rounded up mostly black people and actually set up what, what I like, and I'm not alone, what I like to call one of the many concentration camps in U.S. history where they created this, this, this camp for involuntary detention of thousands of people um, based on nothing else but being black and in Tulsa. The thing that happened next, after all this violence, all the murder, was then there was a really very systematic and deliberate cover-up and rewriting of the history, a writing of the history as a, a race riot rather than a race massacre, erasing the story in some places, and otherwise just saying, listen, this was a white, white journalists, white historians, white preachers. I just read a, a long list of reports of what the white preachers of Tulsa were saying, basically said that black Tulsans started it and they got what they deserved and it was and they rioted and were put down. In this case, we can say really very clearly that the distortion and erasure of the Tulsa race massacre was a deliberate choice and a deliberate choice by the people who benefited from it, who perpetrated it and whose, whose supporters and followers perpetrated it. You spoke with one of the key historians of the Tulsa massacre for the nation, Carlos Hill. He's chair of the African and African-American Studies Department at the University of Oklahoma. He's also the co-creator and co-leader of the Tulsa Race Massacre Teachers Institute, which trains K-12 through teachers about how to teach the massacre's history. And he's on the steering committee of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission 
more about that in a minute. You spoke with Carlos Hill about his work. Tell us about how he teaches this history. So I got into talking to Professor Hill because he's got this essay coming out in the American Historical Review. It's the official publication of the American Historical Association. So it's a big deal. And the reason this matters is that the way that, if you're not a historian, the way that you get taught history is based in part on the way that your history teachers get taught, who get taught by professors. He wrote this very vulnerable essay for this elite publication talking about uh, the toll in which doing this work takes, but also why it matters, why historians need to be engaged in the community. And this isn't just an abstract project for him. He has put himself at the service of Tulsa, of Black, of black Tulsa, of, the, of survivors and descendants, and, and trying to say, well, I have these skills as a historian. What can I do? What is the thing or the things that I can do uh, to serve my community? And the answer is, first of all, he's written an amazing book um, that takes pictures, photographs taken from the race massacre, mostly by, by white people who wanted to document the riot. But he puts them right next to testimony, page to page. So on one side, there's a picture. On the other side, there's three or four lines of text from a survivor um, who experienced it. And he puts them next to each other. And it is one of the most powerful books I've read in a long time. Uh, but also he has developed this institute to help teach teachers so that teachers, and again, it's not just, he's very clear about this. It's not just that he's trying to, to teach uh, white historians or white history professors. I'm a white historian, how to teach this history better, which is good. Cause it's, it's some, you know, we do need to be able to, I need to be able to teach this history better, but also he's very clear that this is not a history that black Tulsa had at their fingertips. They too, they had some testimony, they had some in, inchoate memories, but their memory, their narratives were also broken, again, quite deliberately. And so he's working with the community to piece it back together and to, and to help make sure that the next generations of historians and history teachers and students, really everyone, gets this narrative and, uh, and, and learns it. A famous novelist from Mississippi said the past is never dead. It's not even past. And that's certainly true right now with the history of Tulsa in 1921. Uh, there's a conflict going on right this week, mostly about reparations. The commemoration event scheduled for Memorial Day was canceled in Tulsa after Stacey Abrams and John Legend pulled out. That event was sponsored by the official Centennial Commission, which has raised $30 million to build a history exhibit center about the massacre. But the survivors and their descendants have been arguing for a while now that they should get some of that $30 million as reparations. The local commemorative commission says restitution should be the responsibility of the government, not private philanthropy. And indeed, 25 years ago, in 2001, a commission convened by the state legislature issued a report that concluded that payment of reparations, quote, would be good public policy and do much to repair the emotional and physical scars of this terrible incident in our shared past, close quote. But nothing came of that report. And the issue was revived just in the last couple of weeks when the three known survivors testified before Congress on May 19th, including this remarkable woman, Viola Fletcher, who is 107 years old. The lawyers representing the survivors and, their, and the descendants of the massacre said they were seeking a million dollars for each of the three known survivors. 
a $50 million pledge to a fund for survivors and their uh, descendants. Uh, This commission is made up of local people, elected officials, community religious leaders, a few historians, including Carlos Hill, who you talked to. He's on the steering committee. Uh, You talked to him before this event with Stacey Abrams and John Legend was canceled. I wonder if, if you have any comment on this controversy about reparations and and who should pay? Well, I'm not going to weigh into where that $30 million should go to because I feel that's really not my place. But I can say that I think reparations make a lot of sense, that the economic costs of this kind of violence is measurable. I myself am Jewish, and I've thought a lot about the ways in which Jewish wealth was taken We've, we've had these conversations in other contexts and we should continue to around the, the reparations owed both for the descendants of enslaved people, but also for the descendants of events like the Tulsa massacre, where we can really, I mean, it's not even past, right? There are still survivors today and certainly their, their direct descendants are very clearly still impacted by uh, the destruction of, of what otherwise could have been generational wealth. I think there's a temptation of outsiders to say, well, you know, stop being greedy, stop fighting for the money. But I, I think we should reject that temptation. We should look directly at it and say there is there are real costs. There are long-term costs as a result. We can measure them. We can figure it out, and we can start trying to repair that damage. And that is part of the, the work ahead of us as a nation, if we can face it, is to repair that damage. I can tell you I'm not super optimistic that in general, as a nation, we're going to do that work. Um, but I do hope that in some place like Tulsa, where it's a little more finite, than say slavery in U.S. history, though again I'm in favor of that. That we can, um, that we might get get somewhere. And another way that the past is uh, is still with us in Tulsa is that the governor of Oklahoma, a Republican named Kevin Stitt, who had been a member of this Centennial Commission, was removed as a member after he signed a bill passed by the legislature a couple of weeks ago, which bans the teaching in Oklahoma of critical race theory, the bill states that uh, Oklahoma schools are not allowed to teach the concept that a person, quote, by virtue of his or her race bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race, close quote. It also covered sex, i.e. men shouldn't be responsible for things that men have done in the past. This bill would seem to contradict the previous action by the legislature endorsing the payment of reparations to survivors. Let's talk about the Republican campaign in Oklahoma and elsewhere to ban the teaching of critical race theory. Yeah, I mean, I think that really shows you how important critical race theory is, even when they don't define it, right? Because critical race theory is, I mean, there's a lot of things to say about it. One of them is to talk about the ways in which particularly anti-black racism, but racism more broadly, is embedded in American society. And to say you can't teach that is, I think, antithetical to what history is and what we should do, although not a new phenomenon, the idea that history should be leveraged only for a certain kind of majoritarian patriotism is not a new idea. Um, But it does have this new manifestation, and Republicans have latched onto this phrase, critical race theory, uh, as as a way of making the majority, making people who, in fact, hold the power feel like they don't have to be held accountable for the power, feeling like it's it's not their problem. I think it's not something that any historian should endorse, that any legislator um, mandating 
that some kind of content is illegal. I think that's not a pathway that, that we should go. But it is, it's happening very fast on the right. And one of the funny things about this conversation for me is that I have always understood critical race theory as really a critique not of the right wing, although that too, but a critique of kind of the center left, a center left that believes that through existing institutions, we can move our way incrementally towards justice. And that critical race theorists say, no, those institutions are racist in their foundations, like the law it comes really out of law school, that the law is racist in foundations and will not be a tool we can use to move towards justice. So that's a very nuanced and complicated debate. Um, but between two sides of people who believe in justice, how do we get there? The right is not part of that conversation, presumably, um, at least not, not certainly not the far right. But so now critical race theory is being just used as a way to to bludgeon the idea that racism is important, to attack the idea that racism, you cannot understand the history of this country without understanding racism, and to attack the idea that racism, both current but also historical, still shapes who we are today, um, and that a more just society would address that. And one way we could address that is through reparations. There may be other ways to address that, but that the details can be debated, right? The details of to what extent does the law embed racism? To what extent can we use laws anyway to, to, to fight it? I mean, these, these details are, are debatable, but I think the, the fundamental truth is not. And I think we need to mention just briefly that there's a, a part of the history of race in Tulsa is a recent killing by a cop of an unarmed black man with his hands up. This was a traffic stop in 2016, which we can all see on video, Terrence Crutcher uh, was his name. This was, you know, five years ago now, long before the the last year of protests about this. But Tulsa is another place where the cops have killed unarmed black men in traffic stops. Yeah, you know, I, I just saw a statistic. I, I haven't dug into it deeply, but it seems plausible that Tulsa is, in fact, in terms of police killings that black people in Tulsa are killed at a higher rate than in New York City or Chicago or Atlanta or Minneapolis. You know, again, in terms of this critical race theory issue, there's arguments about policing. Can police be reformed or is anti-blackness uh, built into American police structure in a way that is um, indelible and so has to be removed? To what extent is, uh, you know, the police complicity in the 1921 massacre in Tulsa and police complicity in the in violence against black men in Tulsa today connected. Well, I would say the connections are pretty strong. Um, and again, what we do about that is a matter of debate, um, but that the connections are strong, that the history is strong, that it's not a coincidence that these places where there's these historical moments of anti-black violence and contemporary anti-black violence are in the same place. It's just not a coincidence, predictable and understandable even as the future and the next steps remain murky. Carlos Hill, the historian in Tulsa who you spoke with, concludes that, quote, with the activities surrounding the 100th anniversary of the massacre, working towards healing history has taken the center stage, close quote. I think it's turned out that what Carlos Hill calls healing history is much more difficult than many people had imagined. Well, that's not the job of history. History is not here to promote healing, although that could be a goal of historians. And that's, I think, what, what Carlos Hill is really saying, is that as historians, we have a very specific 
kind of skill set. We have tools, we have authority, we have um, you know research practices, we have the ability to take lots of information and distill it into coherent narratives. And then to what end are we putting those narratives? And Hill is saying we should put them towards healing. But healing doesn't mean we just all let bygones be bygones and get together and hold hands and sing, sing hymns. Healing history requires the historian saying, this is the harm. These were the perpetrators. These are the victims. Here are the consequences. And now if we want to heal, we actually have to repair the wound rather than just ignoring it. David Perry wrote about the Tulsa Massacre of 1921 and its history for The Nation magazine. You can read his piece at thenation.com. Thank you, David. This was great. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about history on TV, because a hundred years ago this week in 1921, a white mob attacked an all-black neighborhood in Tulsa in what was one of the worst episodes of racist violence in U.S. history. Historians think it left 300 black people dead and 10,000 homeless. The anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre is the subject of many TV documentaries. For comment, we turn to Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime critic and writer whose work has appeared in the LA Weekly at NPR.org and many other places. We reached her this week, as usual, at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hi, John. Happy to be here. Well, there are Tulsa documentaries on PBS, on CNN, on the History Channel, on Nat Geo. Which one did you watch? I watched two of them, uh, and I also found out from the LA Times that um, one of the first mentions of this massacre, recent mentions, was in an episode of the Alan Moore adaptation Watchmen on HBO, uh, where it was um, actually pictured in a kind of science fiction form, which apparently was very effective. I haven't seen it. Um, And the PBS show was uh, shown on Monday night, um, and I assume that it can now can be seen um, on on PBS. It's very, very similar to the National Geographic one, which I also watched and will not be out until June, June 18th. And then it opens officially on June 19th, which is Juneteenth, the holiday, and is obviously a very appropriate one. They're both very good, very thorough, very traditional um, documentaries, and they both center around one remarkable reporter um, who's African-American. Um, her name is Deneen Brown. She wrote a a front page story in the Washington Post, a very richly reported story, I've read part of it, um, about the massacre. And I had never heard about any of this. And I've been in this country for 45 years, but that's much less important than the fact that her father, who is a pastor, 
had never heard of it either. Now that's very significant. She's African-American, obviously, so is he. Janine Brown has done a huge amount of uh, research into this. She comes across as an, a, a very accomplished uh, writer and, and researcher, and she's the star of both the PBS and the National Geographic one. There are lots of community activists who are interviewed in those two uh, documentary. Um, they were the impetus behind the archaeological dig is the only word that we can really describe it. Um, most of the people um, on the dig were experienced uh, archaeologists, but the, the people who pushed for it were black. Um, and the mayor of Tulsa, uh, a young mayor, is certainly behind them. Now, I couldn't tell whether this was because he was a brave and honorable man or because he was about to be sued for reparations. You can't really tell, but he's making every effort for sure. Um, and as you say, you know, the, what's be, what this is being called, a massacre rather than a riot, raises the question of whose history we need to know and how should that history be told? And I think both those questions, which are much more general questions now that are being raised by Black Lives Matter and, and the NAACP and other um, groups, are also questions about democracy, because you have to have a robust infra democratic infrastructure for wrongs to be uncovered uh, and righted. And I think that, that right now there is a lot of concern about that, not just we, we, we now have a, you know, adult president in the White House, but the infrastructure of democracy is being eroded by, you know, voter suppression and, and so on and so forth. And as a result of it, certain versions of history, which are rather urgent, are not, not getting told until now. Well, I watched the documentary on the History Channel, which is called Tulsa Burning. I was skeptical because of what the History Channel is. Uh, it's its own... Uh, by A&E, which in turn is owned by Disney and Hearst. And the I looked up, what are the most popular shows on the History Channel? The most popular shows are Secrets of Skinwalker Ranch, which is a show about UFOs visiting Utah. Cars That Built the World, which has episodes on Ford, Mercedes, Toyota, and Rolls-Royce. And Swamp People, a show about alligator hunters in Louisiana now in its 12th season. So that's the History Channel, but their Tulsa show was excellent. And that's, of course, because of, of its director, Stanley Nelson, who's a famous black documentary filmmaker. He's won a MacArthur Genius Award. He's the recipient of the National Humanities Medal awarded by Barack Obama. He's won three primetime Emmys, one for Freedom Riders, one for Black Panthers. So... When he makes a documentary about black history, you know it's going to be a good one. His Tulsa show has a lot of the same expert talking heads as the PBS and the Nat Geo one. These are very articulate and well-informed people. He also runs some of the interviews that were conducted with survivors back in 1999. He has a lot of footage about the recent efforts you've described to excavate what seems to be the mass grave of victims. And he also covers the recent police shooting in Tulsa of an unarmed black man named Terrence Crutcher, which is on video, and he shows that video. So he connects this to the, to the present very um, 
effectively. The only problem I have to say is that the History Channel shows dozens of commercials in an hour that make it very hard to sit through, you know, this this grim and grueling and horrifying history, and then you get, you know, ads for back pain relievers and uh, all kinds of things. But anyway, that show, Tulsa Burning, is streaming now at history.com. On pbs.org, you can see Tulsa, the Fire, and the Forgotten. And starting on June 18th on the National Geographic channel, Rise Again, Tulsa in the Red Summer. And now it's time for something completely different. What can you recommend that is not about racist violence in American history? I am going to recommend highly a movie that is actually an ancient fairy tale told against the background of Berlin's post wall industrial development <laughs> okay um this is I, I as soon as i saw the name undine i thought i know that from somewhere and in fact i do from a very lovely uh, fairy tale adaptation by the direct the irish director neil jordan under the name undine in 2009 and that one is worth watching as well but this is something completely different this myth of undine um has many iterations going back as far as Paracelsus. Yes. Uh, well-known filmmaker. The well-known filmmaker. Uh, and the myth is is really from the point of view of um, desperate male lovers. It's uh, directed uh, here by Christian Petzold. Uh, and it looks at, on the he made uh, a wonderful film called Barbara, which was uh, with his muse Nina Haas, um, about a, a doctor who in East Germany who is relegated to um, a one-horse town for having wanted to cross over to the west side of Berlin. And uh, his films always, are always very political in an oblique way. And this one is too, even though he got it uh, from the ancient myth, which, by the way, was retold by Hans Christian Andersen as The Little Mermaid, and then became a Disney film of the same name. So it's actually a, a very well-known one. And he tells it as a kind of feminist fairy tale in modern, modern garb. The myth goes that... Um, a despairing male lover can go to a lake and cry out the name of Undine. And she is this kind of water sprite. She'll respond and come to him from the lake. And if he betrays her, he must die. So he leaves her for another woman and she embraces him in a bubble of water that drowns him and then goes back to the lake. That is the ancient myth. The modern feminist fairy tale is somewhat similar, um, but it has a very contemporary feel. Um, the very lovely and, and uh, beguiling German actress Paula Beer plays um, a young woman named, uh, she's a historian who freelances giving tours of urban development in Berlin. And uh, we actually get quite a lot of footage of her delivering the soliloquies for these um, for these tours for you know foreign tourists and other German tourists about a series of 
to scale, uh, scale models that represent the hidden, hidden history of Berlin. So here we have another hidden history. Um, Berlin apparently was built on a series of swamps, which is pretty evocative right there. But this takes us right the way through, through much of the hidden history that Germany has not faced up to. And that's not just the Holocaust, but also the history of, of East Germany, where Petzold's parents actually grew up. So he knows his East Germany very well. And they're quite fascinating. You'd think it'd be very dry. However, this young woman has a lover, and we know that he's going to be bad news because he's got a little pointed beard. <laughs> um, and uh, he has come to their usual coffee spot underneath uh, the building where she gives her tours to tell her that he's met another woman and, and is in love with her and is going to marry her. And uh, she gets uh, very angry and tells him that he must die now. And he doesn't know whether to be disbelieving or crushed. So she says, you have to stay here. So for a while he stays there. She keeps going back from her tour to check that he's still at the table. Eventually he disappears and she immediately meets a young industrial diver who's um, played by Franz Rogowski, who was in uh, Petzold's wonderful most recent film, Transit, which was about a, um, a stateless immigrant going from country to country. But he's an industrial diver, so there's a lot of underwater footage. And uh, I won't say what happens next because it will ruin the film, but... Um, she, uh, he is very badly injured and presumed to be brain dead from an underwater um, incident in which he uh, loses, he has no oxygen for 12 minutes. And she stalks out of the hospital where he's been declared brain dead and goes off through a forest, um, which leads to her former lover's house. And I will say no more about what happens next. So um, uh, Petzold is a, just an incredibly clever and talented uh, filmmaker. So he makes this both enchanting and absolutely devastating all at the same time. He apparently saw Berlin Babylon, the wonderful series which we've spoken about here and which you can still see on Netflix, which was about urban redevelopment in Berlin between the wars and then uh, after World War II. And it gave him the idea for putting these two things together. So it's a story about desire, both thwarted and fulfilled, but it is also a story about hidden histories that need to be uncovered. I was absolutely mesmerized by, as I have been by all his films uh, and uh, his other films, uh, Yella, um, Barbara, and uh, Jericho, all of which rely very heavily on his muse, a very haunting uh, German actress called Nina Haas, who would not have been right for this role, which is for a very young woman, are really worth seeing. His last name is spelled P-E-T-Z-O-L-D. And this one is just as good, um, although very surprising. Undine, it's on Video on demand pretty much everywhere starting on Friday. We have just a minute or two left here, and we want to say just a word about June is Pride Month. What 
can you suggest for Pride Month? Well, there's this huge amount going on in the film and television world all over the place. And I've chosen um, Criterion because they already have a bunch of films that they've pulled together for Pride Month. Some of them are new, some of them are not. And I wanted to um, mention a few of those that are opening in June, beginning today. One of them is an ongoing series of discussion of game-changing queer film history called Queer Sighted that is uh, led by Michael Koreski, um, a very good film writer from Film Comment. Um, and that will uh, lead into um, a bunch of very well-known films. One of them is Pasolini's Teorema. There is Cruising, the famous to some, infamous to, uh, to others with Al Pacino. Um, the mainstream film Personal Best uh, and Desert Hearts, and also Todd Haynes' marvellous film Poison. There are others too. There are also three films by jo the great John Waters going to be shown, um, all very well known. One of them is, uh, and all starring the wonderful uh, late uh, Divine. Uh, one is Multiple Maniacs, Pink Flamingos, which I think came with a scratch and sniff uh, sheet at the time. I don't know whether that is going to be this time. <laughs> uh, and Female Trouble. Uh, the equally famous Medchen in uniform, um, the 1930s anti-fascist lesbian film about uh, lesbianism in a, a, a girls' boarding school by Leontine Sagan, a wonderful film. Freak Orlando, uh, directed by uh, the, I can't remember whether she's German or Austrian, Ulrika Ottinger who made a wonderful film about, Mong about Mongolia. Um, and this is a, a reading of uh, Virginia Woolf's Orlando that is completely different from the Sal Sally Potter film. There is also a BPM, which was a fairly recent film, which I just loved, um, about the French version of Act Up during the AIDS crisis very much worth seeing, beautifully made. And uh, um, finally, there is a retrospective of documentaries by Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman, um, who really opened up the whole documentary canon to to, gave, uh, to films about uh, queer culture. They're showing The Times of Harvey Milk, an absolutely wonderful documentary, and Common Threads, stories from the AIDS quilt. Um, all of those you can see on Criterion. And I think we will come back to Pride Month uh, in other weeks because there is a huge amount um, planned. But this is uh, off to a very good start. Ella Taylor is our film and TV critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. 
Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Thank you.